You are now listening to episode 68 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Here I'm interviewing Scott Crow. I recently met Scott at uh, an event on his speaking tour. And I was profoundly impressed. I know I use the word profound a lot, so maybe I shouldn't use that word. I was impressed. I'm going to read from Scott's bio on his website. Scott Crow is an international speaker and author. He has engaged his varied life as a co-op business co-owner, political organizer, educator and strategist, activist, filmmaker, dad, and underground musician in a lifelong quixotic quest of enacting the ideas of collective liberation rooted in the philosophies of anarchy. For over two decades, he has focused on diverse socio-political issues, including worker cooperatives, animal liberation, feminism, police brutality, environmental destruction, prison abolition, political prisoners, alternatives to capitalism, and disaster relief. So, that is a lot. Um... I don't know what to say. Um, Anarchy is new to me, and it is not what I thought it was. I find it incredibly intriguing and something I want to explore more. I just fell deeply in love with Scott and his work when I uh, met him. Um, I have, uh, I don't know, uh, he really speaks to my heart. And I just uh, sat down and had a phone call with him, and that's what you're going to hear. It's not a how-to. It's not an autobiography or anything. Uh, It's just a conversation. And hopefully you'll find something within that speaks to you as well. Enjoy the show. And of course... Thanks for listening. Brian. Hey, Scott. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm actually really good. How are you doing? Oh, all right. All right. Getting settled in here. I think I'm I think I'm all set. Good. Uh, it has my audio. Not bad. Okay. Uh, not bad for crappy. It's yeah. Always good. It, <laughs> uh, the I'm recording now. It just automatically records, okay? That's great. Um and then um, what I like to tell people bef- before we start is that it's not live, and if anything is said that you f- aren't don't approve of, um, we could just edit it out or whatever. All right. Fantastic. The other piece of that I would add is that if there's something I've said and it was too long and drawn out, and you want me to re-say it, um, just ask me to restate it again, and I'm totally okay with that. Oh wow. Okay. Looks like I'm a little loud. Yeah, so um, I am recording outside this evening. I love that. We had an insane break in the weather, so uh, I figured I'd move the recording studio outside. (laughs) Good on you, man. (laughs) We'll see. Last time, a couple times I've done this, uh, crazy things happen. Uh, Dogs, neighbors, guns, 
I don't know, you know, jets, helicopters, black helicopters with big bright lights. I love that. Scott, do you um do you live in fear on a daily basis? Not at all. No. I would say, uh, is this the first question? It's just something that pops in my head. I don't have uh, I don't have any notes. I don't even oh, have a good. pen. I love that. No. Okay. Good. That's fantastic. No, I love this. All right. So uh, no, I don't live in fear. Actually, I, I'm not saying that I'm not afraid sometimes because things have happened in my life that have been very uh, fear-inducing or, or in my life and those around me. But in my day-to-day life, no, actually, I actually uh, trust and love a lot of people. And I think that's one of the main motivators that keeps me going because I want, uh, you know, like I, I love the engagements with people. I also love the engagements with the natural world around us. And I don't mean to make that sound hippie-like because it's not like that at all. Um, but I, I think those are those are strong motivators. Um, it's not, not because I, I think the human species deserves to, to live or die more than any other species, but it's just that where I'm, I am on this planet right now. All right. That is so cool. Yeah, I love it. And um, I'm, you know, uh, I used to find nothing more offensive than the term hippie. Like, no, I found nothing uh, less attractive to me than that, that, I don't know, that image or whatever. And now, and now anytime I think I might be acting hippie-ish, I'm kind of happy for myself. (laughs) (laughs) That means you're letting go of control, right? Exactly, right. I am divisive about hippies, though, but that's a long, old term thing that has gone on with me. Uh, you know, because for me, like, I always came from this uh, uh, much more militant, much more re- removed, much more street and urban kind of uh, political understanding. And when I when I deal with people who are on the Cal- in California, we call it woo or woo-woo. I don't know if you've ever heard that oh, term. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, so it's always interesting. Like, you know, doing a forest, uh, a tree set in the forest is way different than, you know, like like fighting with Nazis in the street or something. I'm not saying that it's it's not macho or not macho. It's just totally different mindset. Sure. And how you engage yourself. Will you show up on time? Can can you will each other have each other's back? You know, there's all these things to it. It's weird. I, I actually haven't even dissected it uh, out loud in a long time. <laughs> all right. Maybe we can dive in deeper. Sure, let's man. um, let's do a little recap on uh how this all went down and how we met and. Yep. I'll uh, say I, I just recently discovered you. Um, I think just via Twitter. And then dove into your website, listened to some audio, I read some blog posts, and um, the things you're talking about really spoke to me. And I was super impressed that you had a piece on Kropotkin, because he's like my hero right now. So I've been reading a lot about him. And then, lo and behold, I see that you're speaking in Cleveland. And I'm like, this is insane. What are the chances of this? So... I uh, made sure I got down there to see you speak um, on your tour, Black Flags and Windmills, Creating Power from Below. I'm going to tell you what, man, it was moving, impactful, educational. Um, There were tears, hugs, laughter. It was was moving. And I thank you. Wow, thank you. Thanks for saying that. It's really nice. And then we uh, took a little car ride and we barely made it to the bus station. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh! Sorry about that. Well, the old the old Mercedes uh, decided it didn't want to go f- forward, <laughs> so it was a slow drive. <laughs> it's always the problem with them. So let's dive into this black flags and windmills and uh, yeah. cover your story. Tell us who you are and 
Fantastic. Wait on me? Yeah, sure. Okay. Go for it. Uh, Talk away. So, um, well, Black Flags and Windmills uh, is basically uh, is a book from PM Press that I have out that came out in 2011 originally. is about to be reintroduced uh, in a second revised and expanded edition from PM Press this year, which is uh, it should be out in uh, June of 2014. Make sure you and, stay stay real close to the mic, okay? Okay, and so it should be out again in 2014, in June of 2014, uh, in a revised and expanded edition. And basically the book tells, um, it's, it's equal parts memoir and equal parts um, organizing philosophy and, and some political movement, social justice history. And basically what I try to do in, this, in the book is talk, talk about uh, what happened after Hurricane Katrina, specifically with this organization I co-founded called the Common Ground Collective. And um, just, you know, to give context to it, I had, by the time that we co-founded this, I co-founded this organization, um, I'd already been doing political work in various forms as an activist, an organizer, or whatever, uh, since 1985. And so, uh, all of that experience um, came came to light after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, and just like the other co-founder, Malik Rahim, who is a, a 40-something year organizer, who is an ex-member of the Black Panther Party, had been a longtime tenants and housing rights activist and had actually done prison time, had been a political prisoner supporter. Um, he brought 40 years of experience to the table. And we what happened was that the book basically tells the story of how we co-founded this organization uh, based on not of a not a charity model, but actually a solidarity model, where communities would have the power themselves to build power from below without interference or or uh, hindrance from the government. And so, with that, we kind of started this organization that wasn't just anti-statist, but actually wanted to 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 really uh, challenge people to re- what is to imagine what does the future look like and how do we get there. Except the disaster made it much more real. The man-made disaster of Hurricane Katrina made it much more real. So the book tells the story. Uh, uh, actually, let me say the stories. There's multiple stories um, of the Common Ground Collective within the larger context of what happened in Hurricane Katrina. In Hurricane Katrina, there's so many stories to tell. Uh, I couldn't even begin to tell them. And I'm not. I'm not from New Orleans, so it'd be it'd be terrible for me to tell those stories. But all I can do is tell the story of this organization, how we started with three people, $50, and then how we built from that, built an organization and a network that um, had 30,000 volunteers come through in the first three years, uh, built community clinics, community gardens, uh, did service work, aid distribution centers, and all of this, not in charity, but actually in solidarity with the people of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast so that they could take it over themselves and also so they could build their power the way they saw fit. And I think that the common ground, um, it's interesting because even when I, even in the process of living through what was going on and then writing about it, reflecting on it a little bit later, I still reflect differently now on it. I think that's an important point to make. So some of the ways I talk about it now might be different than the way I talked about it in the book because I started writing the, the book is written on, I started writing it in 2007 based on notes that I had taken, you know, during 2005 and then later in 2006. So, so, but, you know, it's interesting how history, uh, you know, as we get away from those ruptures or from those moments, how we can look at them differently and have more perspective on them. And I think I recognize that as I get older. So if I talk about it differently than you read in the book, you're like, hey, you didn't say that in the book, at least to know where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but when we, when we built Common Ground, that there was two basic premises in it. 
to, to build infrastructure that had never existed before in any of these communities and to rebuild infrastructure that had collapsed under the long, slow history of capitalism. Uh, and this would be like your basic infrastructure that, that civil society needs to function, healthcare, education, um, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you deal with elderly people? Um, how do we deal with social spaces? Um, all of these, uh, all of these complex things that make our social lives. We wanted to rebuild those things, or to build them, or to build them from scratch because they didn't exist. And, and you know, the idea was not to build like one clinic in, in one community and say, "Hey, we're done," and let's all pat ourselves on the back. Let's say, "Let's build a clinic on every corner. Let's build childcare on every corner, a women's shelter, like everywhere, because we all need these things." But let's do it not to make to make ourselves feel better but to actually build power for these communities so they can choose how they want to determine their own futures did common ground exist before katrina or was it did it, it no it was an outgrowth it, of that effort right and that and that was one of the things i think that was really difficult for us is that, that we had to to build all these things from scratch in the middle of a disaster and uh, we didn't have time to, to figure them out. And, and even even with all the political experience or the social justice experience that we would brought to the table, we still ended up creating the same mistakes that we made before, uh, as well as, uh, you know, is pushing a lot of ideas a lot further. Yeah, I imagine your first time out the gate, there's going to be some mistakes. No, for sure. But we, but you know, it wasn't like starting starting from scratch. You know, like we knew how to build a clinic. We knew how to do or how to organize. We knew that, you know, like uh, we brought the element of armed self defense to those communities. Not that it was the most important thing, but we brought that to those communities. We didn't have to debate what that looked like. We just had to to enact it. And um, but the thing is, the internal organizing was a lot harder when you start to have general assemblies with people. When you start to try to do power sharing with people who haven't practiced that. There's a lot of difficulties that come in those things. And so we, we ended up, you know, again, like, uh, you know, we, we perpetuated patriarchy. Uh, you know, we, we, we perpetuated classism, you know, like just in subtle forms, maybe not the most exact forms, but definitely in subtle forms, even as we try to uh, fight against them or transform those ideas within our organization and within the people that we came into contact with. Yeah, I, I know some you know, of. I can say is, I mean, we're all products of the history that we bring to the table. Exactly. Right? Yep. You yep. are. I am. We. I mean, we can't just erase all of those things. It's a. It's a, a long process of undoing. Yeah, and some of it you mentioned that it, it actually was used to the community's advantage. Say, you self-describe yourself. Uh, I heard you say you're a. a white redneck from texas <laughs> absolutely find yourself aligned with some former black panthers and um during some of the worst moments you are to make some change you actually took advantage of white privilege to get some things done right and i think that's an important thing to make right like we recognize that we had a lot of power not only from skin color and economic privilege for those of us who came but also because we were from the outside and so we were able, you know, like common ground volunteers were able to put themselves in positions that, that, that people from those communities couldn't put themselves in or weren't willing to because their lives had been destroyed. And, and the thing is, when I say that, it's not, again, it's not in this heroic narrative of white saviors coming in, although that definitely, you know, that was part of the racism that happened subtly. The idea was never to be like, it's like, we will do this because this is our part to do, and you do these other things because that's what you can do. Yeah, that's, so what, I, that's what I took from it. It was a lot of what you can do to help a community by asking the community what they need. 
I was really impressed by that. You weren't doing the white knight thing. Right, and, and that's a much more difficult way to engage, right? It's much easier for a large organization, or for any organization to come in and say, look, this is what we're going to do for you, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do this, this, and this, and they're going to do the same in all communities. It's much harder to ask communities what they want because a lot of times they have to figure out what they want because nobody asked them that before, you know? And then other times it was really easy because the communities were like, oh, yeah, we want this. And I think you, 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 just that word community, I think, is a really important thing to think about for a second. And, and when, I'm, when I talk about these things, I don't talk about them in abstracts or, or in theoretical concepts, because I'm not. I'm definitely a redneck from Texas, and I think it's important to talk about how do these things relate to real people. But there is no one community, right? We're all incredibly, uh, incredibly complex social animals, and that even within New Orleans, we were dealing with thousands of overlapping multiple communities right and and it was really difficult for people to see if they came from the outside without any any uh perception of that it's like they would see poor black people and they were like that's the community and i'm like no there's not there's this religious community there's this black nationalist community there's this community in algiers there's this community in the lower ninth where there's multiple there's this you know there's multiple overlapping communities that always don't all get along so it was always difficult for us to traverse all of those different difficult relationships, those long relationships. But I think one thing that we, we brought to the table was at least trying to understand that it was multiple and, and complex instead of saying, hey, it's just one big community. Yep. Let's back up for one minute. All right. And let's say, <clears throat> let's cover how, um, why and how did you find yourself in Katrina that in New Orleans during the Katrina disaster, which you say is a man-made disaster also. I'd like to cover that too. Um, well, absolutely. I'll, I'll address this, the second question first. Uh, Katrina is absolutely a man-made disaster. And um, I said this in the talk, and, and, and you, you must take this home. For people who did not live in the Gulf Coast region, is absolutely man-made. And it was the worst disaster in, in, uh, worst man, worst disaster in U.S. history. And, and it's, it's, you know, there's three, three really, there's four really big, big pieces. Um, two of them are interrelated, which is about one, the first one, which is climate change. You know, man-induced climate change is causing storms to be bigger than they ever have been and much more severe. The second part of the ecological piece of that is that in the Gulf Coast, which is giant, uh, we've been um, digging out deeper and deeper to get oil, extract oil from uh, the Gulf. So they've been, they've been removing all the natural barriers that would stop the storms from coming in the sandbars and this is um and, and it's the oil derricks is part of that but the second part is that, that they've been also widening the mouth of the mississippi river so they can move uh barges up and down there to move uh products up and down so that's really the first big piece the second piece is the levees were never built to withstand what they said they were going to and that's the failure of the corps of engineers but also uh, uh, local politicians and grafting money. Long history of that in Louisiana, uh, and this is all. This is not documented in my book, but is documented in lots of other books. Um, and then the third piece, which is I think the most important piece, is the absolute failure of the, uh, of the government in their response um, before the storm, and then and then how they responded later, which is basically to leave you know plus or minus eighty to hundred thousand people uh, to die with no plan, no water, no food distribution, no nothing, um, no way to get out of New Orleans, nothing. And, and, that, and, and, and within that, you know, they really, when people started to, to try to take care of themselves by 
um, you know, like appropriating, uh, you know, food and water from from grocery stores and, and, and you know buildings that had been abandoned, they were considered looters and um, and they were the orders were shoot to kill. That piece, which I said before, is absolutely criminal neglect. Yeah, you <clears throat> by the U.S. government to leave people to die, mm-hmm. and then to order to shoot them uh, for for doing what they need to survive. Yeah, you said they declared martial law. Damn right they did. As soon as the uh, this disaster happened. Well, that was right after the levees failed. Yeah. So the storm came and went through, and the levees didn't fail right away. I mean, this all happens really quick, right? But the storm comes in on Sunday, it kind of dissipates, but then the storm surge comes and all the water comes, and it forces the it it crashes it crashes. Uh, a couple of, of uh, barges into the levees, and a couple of levees fail. So you have water opening up in, in this giant bowl, and that only takes about uh, four hours for all that to happen. And that was on Monday, and then martial law was declared Monday afternoon. And all of this moves really fast now, but at the time, in real time, it was really long and really, you know, really drawn out. So, so that is i think that's that's just the framing of what happened to katrina and as to your second as to your earlier question which is why did i come there i think it's chaos theory right it's all these all these different things lead you to any point at any time and i think that um there was a confluence of elements like personal relationships i had with people um my political organizing experience and then seeing the realities of what was happening uh, not just seeing them, but hearing them on the phone from people who were there, as well as um, seeing what was happening on TV as it was unfolding in real time, I think just compelled me to go. You were in um, Austin, Texas at the time? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's where I was You'd make this, what I would imagine is about an eight-hour trek down there. Yes. And then you had an initial mission, right? Right, which was to find a friend of ours who um, had been released from prison after... 32 years and 29 years in solitary confinement, a man named Robert King. And um, he was living in New Orleans at the time. This is a member of the Angola Three? Yeah, he's a, he's part of what's called the Angola Three, which is um, three of the longest held people in solitary confinement in modern U.S. history. Um, these three men collectively have spent more time in solitary confinement than anybody in U.S. history. Um, and individually, um, in modern U.S. history, they have been the, the longest held. And the reason, you know, they're, that they're important to the story is that uh, my wife, um, Ann Harkness, and I have been doing political prisoner support for them since 2001, since Robert King was released. And I think that's um, important to know because we had built this really deep relationship with him because Ann had taken him around to all the first uh, events that he did around Texas and helped when we'd given him support for a long time. And then uh, we'd built a really, I mean, King is family. And in fact, we call him King, you know, I mean, his name is Robert King, but we just call him King because that's his nickname. And um, when, this, when the levees failed, uh, we didn't want him to die there. I felt it would have been a travesty if he had died there. And so um, I decided uh, with this other man to do something about it and try to find him. And so that kind of started the whole odyssey, which ended up becoming the Common Ground Collective. That's absolutely an amazing story. I mean, you're going in and everyone else is fleeing that has the ability to except for all the people stuck there. Right. So you have to boat in. You see people stranded everywhere on rooftops, stuck in attics, basically steaming alive in attics um, if they can't escape. And then if they do, they're stuck on a rooftop. And yet there's martial law happening around you. 
it was it, it was a uh, uh, really quite a story to hear you tell in person. Well, you know, you've got a really uh, interesting version too because uh, the we talked about a lot more of that the inception part because um, Sunseer Shakur, who I hadn't seen in six or seven years, and this man David David Ampersand, who I, we all three hadn't been in the same room together, and so you got to you know like that audience uh, got to hear stories that we didn't ever tell anybody before. We had never written them down or anything. And, and in fact, we hadn't even got to talk to each other about. And that was a really moving and powerful experience for me to be able to talk in the same room with Sincere and David at the same time about these stories. And, um, you know, it's as traumatizing as they were. It's very healing. You know, I mean, there's a long, long road to recovery. But I don't want this to become a her heroic, white heroic narrative or a man heroic narrative. You have to understand that. The, the, the Common Ground was a complex uh, organization and network, and it um, and there was thousands of people just like yourselves who made it the reality. We all made it the reality. You know, even all the things that I laid out, there was much more that was done that I I, I could never. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to think. All I was was an inoculator, an, in, an incubator. Right, it. right. That, and that and that people like yourselves came and brought all their ideas and made it into a much better reality or a much different reality. Right. And so um, you had to um, leave and then come back. And then when you re-entered um, New Orleans, I think if I'm getting the story correct, then it was time for community support after your initial uh, rescue attempt. Right. And then I just am so fond of your approach. I think we covered this for a second, but I'd like to go deeper into it you come into communities and you just ask them what they need and find and see if there's some way you can help them get their needs. I was, that's, it's absolutely brilliant. And what are some of the things that, uh, you had to do there? Well, you know, I mean, when I, when I, when I first posed the question, even to Malik, before we even ask the rest of the community that was around him in his neighborhood, I thought it was going to be this complex political answer. I was really afraid of it. I was like, they're going to they're going to say things that we just can't do because we have we don't have the resources to do it. And um, and really, when it came down to the question, what what do you need? The first thing that they said was like, just take out the rotten garbage from here, and move it down the road, so it, so it doesn't you know hurt anybody. And when they said that, it just opened this door. It was just like, oh, we can do that. Yeah. And yeah. it, was, it was one thing after another. It's like, well, you know, you know, like my grandmother has diabetes. She has nobody to look at it. And then it was like, oh, we have these dead dogs that are shot by the cops at night, but they're piling up. Can, can you all do anything? about? It? And, then, and it was just one thing after another. And then we were like building first aid stations and clinics. And then but the, but the questions I kept saying, was like, could a clinic become a hospital? You know, could a first aid station become a clinic? These were the concepts we were building. And, and the answer was, yes, we could do all these things without any resources they wouldn't be awesome they wouldn't be amazing they would not fulfill what the state is already doing but they would be these small openings this crack in history that we could open that we could wedge open where we could be who we are and the 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 the, the questions you know like to me came a lot from the zapatistas because they have this whole concept called uh, the Zapatistas are these indigenous people in Chiapas, Mexico, who rose up in 1994. But they have this whole concept, which is to lead by obeying. That if you're in leadership, 
you ask the people. You never tell the people what the, what's going to happen. You always ask, which is basically an anarchist idea, which is that we can, you know, even if you're in leadership, you always check with people and you always share power. And it's a way that we can all participate in determining our futures. And so it starts with the question, what do we want and who are we and how do we help you build your power? And so for, for me to be able to practice that, that was the first opening. That was the first crack in my history where I was able to actually practice that on this large scale. And then we as organizations were able to do that. It's good old community organizing. But I think I think the resonance that it has with you is the resonance that it has with so many people. Because nobody asks, right? Red Cross doesn't ask. FEMA doesn't ask. Prisons don't ask. The state doesn't ask. But all of these things together, if we start to ask, then we we have already started to change the social relationship. It's fantastic. It's um, it's a true anarchy in action. Um, I like to cover the word anarchy a little bit. Um, it's a word I've always feared or thought, um, you know, when, um, when there's complete breakdown, it's anarchy, it's chaos, but in fact, anarchy is culture and community and mutual aid acting, you know, through human loving kindness. That's what I think. And I think anarchy brings us into kind of... You there, Scott? Yeah, that was really weird. That happens. Okay. Skype, I love you. The world of Skype. Yeah. Um, well, I think anarchy, you know, one is just a point of reference. It's a political point of reference for what we engage in and what we know ourselves without anybody telling us. It's the moment before you name the beauty of a flower. It's the time when, when somebody destroys something around you and you know that it's wrong without anybody saying anything about it. It's the time when we engage together lovingly and we help each other and we don't even have to say that we're doing it for any reason. And, and, and I think that that's what's really beautiful about it. Um, and, then, and, and it's just a political reference uh, for, for the things that we engage in. But I think it has a lot of power in it because it's already in conflict with the state. Because what is the state and what it what it manifests, right? It's not just not just tyranny or quote unquote or or um, or, or, or all these obvious manifestations of it. This you know, like uh, cops and the juries and things like in prisons. But it's also these subtle things that we rely on the state, like FEMA and Red Cross and things like that, without even thinking about it, instead of relying on each other. And, and what yeah, this is this is something this is something Kropotkin wrote about. Um, oh, the, the further he'd get away from into the wilderness and found isolated populations that had no, you know, governance per se. You know, some oligarchy or something <laughs> over top of them. They functioned remarkably well, even in insanely harsh conditions in Siberia. Oh, for sure. And you were actually able to kind of recreate that in the middle of a disaster zone. Uh, you know, the. But I don't want to paint it as this as this beautiful thing. It was beautiful. no. It's I'm sure it was. It was brutal. absolutely brutal. I mean, I yeah. Uh, I'm just talking about just the human spirit and actually getting right. things done outside of government or NGOs or whatever. Right, right, right. And I totally agree with that. I think that. It's been, you know, and, and for me, like, 
even my understanding of anarchy today is way different than it was in the 80s or, the, or even the 90s when I really, really started to reconceive as the, of, of the idea, right? And I love the concept of it as the idea. You know, like that's a, a, that was a Spanish anarchist thing they used to say. They called it the idea. And I love that. I, uh, I, I love that because it is just a set of ideas. And it doesn't matter what we call it. It's just what we do and how we engage. Yeah, those are it's, you're trying to keep it from becoming an ism like every other ism right and 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 i have to fight that within myself right because it's easier for me to just throw it into a box and name it as these four or five things than it is for me to be on this continual journey of exploration and explain that exploration because what i tell you about it today is different than i said five years ago or 10 years ago 15 years ago and what it will be different in five years not because i'm willy-nilly and i'm thinking different you know like I, i i lost value in it but because it, it has different manifestations of it. Once we start to throw off these shackles of not just economics and, and the state, but we start to change our social relations, those are those are way deeper things. And I don't want to talk about it in so much spiritual terms because I don't think it's ex- external. I think it's just our social relationships with each other. Yeah, sure. When they're allowed to, um, you know, free association, when people are allowed to actually engage culturally, that's when... As much as we can... Yeah, um, there's evil people. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I can't even tell. Like, I mean, I'm sure like George Bush loved his grandkids. You know, I always tell myself that. Like, they always they always say any any evil person. Oh, he loved his he loved his kids. Well, yeah, no. right, exactly. And and so like like even though I you know like I, I don't I don't I'm not trying to absolve that person. I'm just saying like I can understand in some way. You know, and the other thing I have to think about too, like we we mentioned earlier, we were talking about. The uh, the concept of uh, of we are the products of our history. We all are. I mean, and even as I throw off shackles or you throw off shackles, we still are bringing baggage with us that we have carried with us for decades. You know, and it takes a long time to th- to throw that off. I, I at least in my opinion, it does. It seems like the majority of that baggage is capitalism. Mm. Capitalism and it. it's it's baggage. You know, it's pretty. It's. It's quite ro- it's quite a, a robust burden. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, even when I knew about it, I was anti-capitalist in the '80s, as you know, like as a as a as an early you know '20s person, and I still it, it still had it still was able to entangle me in my life. You know, uh, you know, having grown up uh, working poor, it was like it still was it still embedded me to do better than my my my, uh, my mom or to do better than my family. And it's weird how that stuff still entangles you, even when you know better, you know? Yeah, it it just it's doesn't... Insidious. It's It absolutely is. Um, it, we were just taught that, you know, it's... You know, it's the power of the individual and this individual spirit that, you know, makes great change and builds communities when it's... Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the stories we've been told... I don't know, I'm speaking as an American white male, just the stories we've been told, you know, settling of the Old West and things, and it's always this rugged individualism. And, uh... Such bullshit. It's it's, it's such... It's destructive. It's destructive to families. Um, It's destructive to communities and cultures. It's taken... You know, I just... I mean... 
I'm not trying to say like I'm I've known about this for a long time. I'm like two years in reading about these things. <laughs> yeah, but you're a thinking person. Yeah, I'm on a course of rediscovery, life. just trying to question what what the hell I've bullshit I've been fed. Right. I mean, all of us though, and it, it, you know, the process I've been doing is such a long time. I think I mentioned in the talk that you know, like knowing our history is an important thing, and and, and like not like the minutia of it, right? But like. Uh, it's important to know that, like, not only marginalized and oppressed people and exploited people have had their history stolen, all of us have had their history stolen, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the great white myth, the great white story, the hero-savior story, like, I mean, we have all heard those stories, and it's so hard to, to, to fight against them, you know? Uh, and I, think, I just think it's a long, a long time of undoing. And replacing them with narratives that, that don't always do that. And, I, and you know, like I struggle with this as somebody who is a talker. I'm a, you know, I'm a white male as a fast talker. And, um, and, you know, as my partner often says, I'm the fastest guy in the West as, in that in that realm. And so, like, I always have to be conscious of that. And, and, and like, it, it's always a tension, though, in trying to explain this or trying to say, look, it's not me. It's us. Right. It's not you. It's us. We're all in this together. And but but it's it's a, it, there's a difference and there's a huge chasm between saying it and people internalizing it. Absolutely. So what are the what are you working on currently and how are you you know trying to manifest this in in reality? Like Well, I think mainly for me, I feel like my role right now is not to uh, necessarily, or like, like right now, I, I, like I've, I've hung up my boots in some ways, uh, as far as like being on the front lines at everything or doing everything. And I, my, my, what I feel like my role, gen, my roles generally are now is one to figure out who I am and what I'm doing, which I think is most, most important. And I don't know what that is today. You know, I'm an author today, but maybe I won't be tomorrow. Maybe I'll be raising goats in a garden and, uh, you know, in a few years. I think the second thing is that, um, by the time that people have been doing things as long as uh, myself and others like Lisa Fithian have, um, there's a lot of times that people are burned out or they've left political movements. And so I think for the few of us who stay in, it's important to to, um, to mentor the next generation of people who are coming in or the next generations, right, of people who are coming in. Um, not because we have a magical experience or anything, but I think that we have skill sets and we have knowledge based on reality that is actually kind of helpful. And so I feel like that's kind of where I fit in these days. Not, not so, again, not, not to build up the hero myth or to, um, to perpetuate those narratives, but also to, to share with younger people and, and people who are just, um, who are just having their emergency hearts open to uh, some of the experiences that I've had or some of the things I think that could, could help them as we all move forward. And so those are the two biggest pieces. And so in the way it manifests for me for right now is just to write pieces about what I'm doing and to go talk with communities about not just Katrina, but what the, the, the influence that Common Ground had on Occupy uh, and Occupy Sandy and all these other movements as far as um, climate change and, and natural disaster. And so all of these elements are just about having communicating ideas with people. And I feel like for the short term, that's that's a role that I can fill. Wow. But otherwise it's bullshit, right? <laughs> well, I love your reflective spirit currently, but I don't I I bet it, it wasn't always so, you know. 
No, but I mean, I've, I've always felt like, I mean, the, the thing is, to be where I am today, I was rocket boy most of my life, where I was like, I was rocketing forward to the future without any concept of the past or, or any concept of the present. And so what I've done now is having near-death experiences and, 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 and struggling with post-traumatic stress for a number of years following Hurricane Katrina from real actual violence that happened to me or I engaged in. Um, has made me very reflective. Also being under surveillance from the state and feeling free from that, even if it's still happening, um, has given me uh, a new lease on life. I don't, I don't mean that every day I click my heels together and, 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 and sing, sing you know, praise of love, but I'm saying that, that in general, it, it, I, I'm able to be, I, I want to spend more time being reflective now. I have to be reflective. I have no choice in the matter. So let's talk about let's talk about surveillance. This is uh, a just as one other thing before you say that though. Yeah, he's like I'm not even the most reflective person you could ever fucking talk to. I'm a fuck, you know, like I'm just a regular guy, like uh, you you know, like it just happens. I have this accumulation of experience that's that is not more or 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 better or worse than any others. It's just this one that fits in this niche, and that is the perspective I have. Yeah, I well, I'm, really and I'm also just catching you at a moment in in your right. life. You know, I'm not. This isn't the sum total of all of you. So, right. That's, I think that's important. Was to it remember. Walt Whitman said, you know, he we contain multitudes or something like that. Right. Right. I think I, I appreciate that because that's I think is really important. Surveillance. <laughs> Good times. I mean. Obviously, everyone's now become aware of uh, surveillance online. It seems like people are worried about surveillance as far as like what they say on Facebook, things like that. But I think there's actually it. It's much deeper and scarier than just um, getting your password stolen or something like that. It's real life surveillance, and it's kind of shocking when I hear stories about it. Yeah, but here's the th- here's the reason surveillance works, especially when it's owned by the uh, by the government. And there's there's actually I want to talk if you want to talk about surveillance, I want to talk about a couple of different kinds of surveillance. Okay, so I'm going to talk about government surveillance first, and in a couple of different realms, and then we can talk about corporate surveillance. And so government surveillance, if you're okay with that, sounds sounds okay. wonderful. <laughs> so government surveillance, um, the, the the whole thing is that it 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 preys on the unknown. The less we know about it. Uh, but the more that's leaked to us to to give us inference for it, the more afraid of it we are. So um, up until the, re- uh, the 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 revelations of Edward Snowden, we had no idea how deep it could be. But little documents would come out. So like even in my case, I became a canary in the coal mine, right? Or the you know uh, that uh, that that surveillance was happening, but we didn't know the scale of it, right? Like because my documents were minuscule compared to what was happening. And so, um, but the reason surveillance worked is because it's it's predicated on fear. The more we are afraid, the less we will do, not just as political movements or or anything else, or freedom fighters, but just in general, we will be afraid. I mean, they put security cameras up. The whole idea of security cameras, not that it actually records you, is that you are afraid that it actually will record you doing something and then be used against you. And so even though 99% of them do not do that at this point and could not do that at this point. 
And so um, it's about social control. And I think that's really important. What is the surveillance state about? It's about social control. They were able, after September 11, 2001, to open the floodgates further than they had ever done before as far as government control. And without any oversight, because, you know, uh, because uh, Congress people were willing to pass any law, uh, any unscrupulous, unregulated, unlooked at law uh, about surveillance, that's the way we were, that's the predicament we got in. And think, you know, thank goodness that there's people like Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Anonymous and Jeremy Hammond and Antisec and people like that who actually have released information so we can know uh, to, to better degrees what's happening. Because I think an informed public makes a better decision about it, right? We're able to make better, better choices. Now, as far as we speak about in, in social political movements or activist communities, um, they being quote unquote, they, the larger they, the FBI and NSA, they know that we, uh, in their own documents, they talk about how um, they can use fear against us to stop us from, from, from doing the things that we might do as political movements. And I think that's an important thing to think about. If we are afraid, we, we stop asking for more. We stop demanding more. We will not fight for our freedom. We will not fight for the freedom of those around us. Um, but, I, but, you know, what I would say to everybody is don't be afraid. And, and, and when I, I'll say that again, like, do not be afraid. You asked me at the start of this, am I afraid? In my day-to-day -day life, no, I'm not afraid. Are there times I don't give pause or I don't have questions about things? Yes, I would be lying if I said that that was not true. Are there not times I have not been terrified when the ATF or the FBI were going to kick our doors in, when the unknown was so unbearable? Yes, there were times we were doing that. Laying face down on the ground when the police were going to blow my brains out? Yes, I was terrified. And, but the thing is, overall, I, we cannot be afraid because we will stop doing anything. We will, I mean, social control is powerful. And then we will just be subservient to whatever systems are around us, whatever arbitrary, uh, you know, arbitrary economic systems power puts into play. We will, we will say yes, because of we're, we're afraid of this greater unknown terrorism, quote unquote, you know. And if you look at the, if you look at the war on terror in the United States, actually, you know, and we can look at internationally, but there's been over 500 cases uh, that have been tried in terrorism. You know, the FBI was involved in like 260 of those cases, right? This is just the FBI is one of the acronym agencies. And in that, they led over 160 of those cases. So the terrorism plot that they stopped, they also instigated. We should always mm -hmm. question. And I think that that's a really important thing to think about uh, for us when we think about the war on terror and we think about surveillance. The other thing is that when we hear about surveillance, even what's happening in with, with Edward Snowden's releases and all, all of the stuff around the NSA is that we, one, we still don't, we only have about 10% of the information as far as I can, as far as, you know, consensus seems to be, there's a lot more to come. But two is that we can, um, that, that no matter if they collect all the phone calls and everything, they cannot understand what's happening. We can still organize, we can still push, we can still resist. Those things are real. You, you can't stop that from happening. And that, um, you know, you just, there's just certain, there's just ways that you interact on Facebook that you don't interact in, that you interact differently in person because, because of that. 
And that, that's a reality. You know, and I think that people need to think about it in those ways. You just organize differently. We need but, more coffee houses. No, exactly. We definitely need more social <laughs> spaces, for sure. I, I totally agree. Absolutely. We need more social spaces of all kinds for people to, to interact face-to-face. And, um, and I think that it reveals the, the vulnerability in them being able to, to uh, watch us. But it also, I, under, I, I know the way their systems work. They're way more complex. We always, you know, I say the state, right? And we, we think of this giant entity that works together in coordinated efforts. They're not really like that at all, right? Like, it's actually the state is multiplicitous and, and like crazy amount of agencies that all don't get along and all don't have the same agenda except to keep the system going. Right. And so even within the people in the war on terror, if you look at the NSA or the CIA or the FBI, they all don't have the same agendas. And actually, they will fight with each other and then they will fight with sheriffs and the state police and the city police over control over, over things. And those things can work into our favors. They're, they're networks. And I think that's really important to recognize also. Yeah. So the key is to develop local networks, local Absolutely. community support. Yeah. But what's the cliche, right? To to think globally but act locally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way that it has to be, right? And then and then and then. But the other thing I think is really important is to remember is that it doesn't matter what they do. We should keep our eyes on the prizes that we want. If we want collective liberation, if we want freedom for everyone, if we want to to sustain the natural world, um, if we want worlds beyond civilization, beyond power as we know it, and beyond capitalism, then we have to think. We have to move forward on those no matter what the state does. Well, my coffee shop's open if anyone ever wants to come in and chime in in person. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're, we're Where's there. Where's your coffee shop located? Uh, we're in Lakewood, Ohio. Exactly. We entertain all types of insane conversations there. But th- this is the thing: is that, that these are not insane conversations, right? Right, right. I don't even want to. I don't even want to joke about that because they're not insane. Because these are rational conversations. They just don't fit the regular models, right? The the models that turn us into products and consumers and voters. You know these like, but this is the this is the part of cre- creating our pieces of anarchy, our pieces of ourselves of trying to reclaim who we are, even though we don't know what that is yet. Right, right, right. And I don't feel insane. I feel much more sane talking about these things. And I hope that, you know, that, you know, even though I'm pontificating, I hope that you do also. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I, I really, really wanted uh, to talk to you about this. And um, what are the conversations that are that, you know, that you're having with people? What is this movement? You know, where, where, it's a movement of where is it happening? Right. It's happening everywhere. It's happening at your coffee shop. It's happening at the at the, the drug rehab center. It's happening in, in basements. It's happening in churches. People know. Everybody knows shit's bad. Everybody knows the systems are messed up, but nobody knows what to do about it. And so we become, we've often become paralyzed or afraid. And so the state can step in to tell us these things. And so what I'm challenging us to do is recognize that we have the power to make these small things, that we have this, we have the power to make small changes. And, and, and I'm, I'm, the, what, I'm, I'm not here to convert anybody. I'm not here to say I've got the answer or you've got the answer or anarchy is the answer. But what I'm here to say is that liberation is pretty powerful and that I hope that you would accept these ideas. And if you do, then, then you build it the way that it looks for, you know, that, that it means something to you. That's awesome. 
it speaks to me i mean that's just right. exactly what we're seeking uh at our you know me and my business partner um yeah. Just a place that it's just a forum to entertain conversations. I feel that we're often leading people forward a bit because there a lot of people don't know anything about anything. <laughs> we haven't been exposed to it. Yeah, right? and so we mention a few things, a few names, a few concepts, and people are like, "What? What? What? You know, what's going on?" Well, you know, people don't even know what a real coffee is. So, you know, <laughs> it just goes back to like the you know, Baudrillard and, um, this idea that everything is, um, symbolism and Absolutely. there is no reality anymore. We, 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 we're now in such late stage capitalism that we're living with symbols of symbols of symbols. I mean, there is, there's nearly no reality. So to engage someone in a, an open, honest conversation about their culture and community and change and food and it's, it's a limited audience currently, but I don't know. It's People not, are catching on. It, it, but here's the thing: is like I'm going to tell you, it's not limited though. This conversation is happening worldwide in multiple communities. You have just. Uh, discovered it in this way or you have just come to it in this way but there's other people around you just in your city that have come to it thousands of you tens of thousands of you are coming to it in different ways to the same realizations um, with different signifiers yeah you know, I, like I, I feel I feel good on a day-to-day -day basis I, I might yeah. be in a negative mood because I went to Walmart yesterday <laughs> because it was the only <laughs> thing open and I was it made me sad <laughs> for an entire evening uh, you know uh, just to look at the community around me in this evil, um, it, it, God, I'm not going to go on a Walmart conversation, but no, no, no. it really, but, but, it really upset me um, just to see the status of people. Of this. Walmart's a new phenomenon. The consolidation of corporations as they are is brand new. I mean, I, I remember in my lifetime, I don't know how old you are, but I remember my lifetime when Walmart was nowhere except for Arkansas. They were nowhere. They didn't dominate the world economy as they do now. ExxonMobil, the same way. The two biggest corporations in the world right. did not dominate our lives in the way that they do now. So the thing is, how do we unwind out of that? It took hundreds of years to get to this point. And, and this is the answers I don't have. But how do we unwind out of it? And it's not going to happen next week. But recognize that it's a, it's a problem. Uh, or these are problems and that we just have to start to disassociate and start to unwind out of them. Yeah, I um, just uh, highly recommend people seek community and culture. I think a great entry point is food. Um, I think if you just talk to people about eating and drinking and shopping, uh, where they, how they get their foodstuffs, Absolutely. opens up uh, an it's an easy open to um, start a conversation with people. You know, we offer a CSA at our shop meat, eggs, and produce um, direct from farmers. Fantastic. And when I people hear that, they're just absolutely amazed, you know? And then the conversation always ends up going much deeper, and we build incredible friendships with people. Right. And, 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 and you also went paleo yourself, right? Yeah. I've been on this track for, uh, I don't know, four, five years, something like that? Four years? Yeah. 
and and and, and, and for, forgive me if I misquoted, but you you lost a significant amount of weight and changed your 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 whole, the whole way you feel about yourself in doing this, right? Yeah, I had a yeah, I was miserable, very sick, and on multiple medications, very overweight, and uh, was just seeking answers. And you know what? It was actually a a documentary, Food Inc. That. Uh, was like my awakening. That was when the curtain was drawn back and I saw the wizard. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And it's just been a course of exploration from there. You know, I dabbled with, I realized it was an onion and you like, you peel back one layer and there's more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, and then, and I start, but so the, you know, the seeing reality to me was food. Um, um, that was what really blew me away. It was that, Oh my God. And, I'm eating industrial food and that's why I look like an industrial beast. And so, you know, I went vegetarian first thing because nothing offended me more than, um, industrial meat. I did that for 18 months or so. Lost a bunch of weight, but still had, you know, pretty significant health problems. And then, um, latched onto this paleo movement and sorted out a lot of things. It took experimentation though. You know, it didn't cure everything. I had to try a lot of stuff. Right, right. And I don't. But again, it's the unwinding process, right? It's just like when you when you find one thing, then you find more about it. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate people. um, A lot of the leading bloggers, thinkers, talkers, writers that have actually had um, personal health problems. Um, I always love their perspective best because they've had to overcome some obstacle. When you have the guru who's twenty four. And six-pack abs and can tell right. you everything about the world. You know, right. take it with a grain of salt, unless you're at his equal, you know. You're, you're much, much, much more kind than I am to them. <laughs> well, no, I haven't been so much. I'm trying to ease back a bit. I've been good. I've been called a zealot and uh, all kinds of horrible your names. your emergency heart has been alive and open. Yeah, that is an interesting term that I had never heard before until you said that emergency heart i think that's what happened to me i i was it was uh i was being extremely reactionary and wanted to save the world in 28 seconds <laughs> and now i've kind of calmed down a bit that's and, a book isn't it <laughs> is it how to save the world in 28 seconds i have no idea <laughs> we should do that <laughs> let's do it and then it actually the the thing is it takes about 280 years yeah exactly <laughs> So, yeah, so today it's, I have a much more open mind. I appreciate a lot of things. The only thing I am steadfast on, I really try to help people. I mean, I don't know why people open up to me constantly about their health problems as I'm making them a coffee drink or tea or whatever. It's very strange. My recommendation is, you know, don't eat grains. And um, it's something I stick by. I, I don't think they're the basis of human health. You're getting to hear here from my partner also on that. Yeah, it's my, it's, well, the results speak for itself, and it's also evolutionary. And so science plus anecdotes equals pretty, some, you know, profound results. Um, sure. So, sure. yeah, I don't want to, I kind of like tried to get off this paleo bandwagon, but did someone in your uh, life go paleo yeah. as well? How did you know about it? Right. I threw my partner, so... She was vegan for a long time, but was having health issues, and then she came to it, uh, I guess, about two or three years ago, and totally changed her life with it, you know? That's and then that was a huge you know, ethical challenge, as well as, 
you know, as well as personal dietary challenge. Yeah, that was that's what was the interesting part of the puzzle for me. It was that it was an ethical choice. That's why I quit eating meat. But then I discovered it is ethical to eat meat when it's done properly. Exactly. And, and that was my thing. I actually stopped eating meat until I found a farm. Now also had to move across the country i was in the san francisco bay area all right i moved back to cleveland ohio was trying to reestablish. we had a major breakdown and um found a farm and then then i gave myself permission to pursue meat again right but right. i wouldn't have done I totally it understand that. yeah so it's complicated i mean we're you know a friend of ours said years ago we're all fucked up about food and, and sex he's talking about america specifically especially yeah we have some serious problems we're we are infantile no for sure well i would i would add political consciousness to that also yeah well we're traumatized infants which is a double whammy yeah right so i mean that's i mean that's the effects of capitalism and and, and its baggage that right in power in general yeah, so um, my attempt to subvert uh, the powers that be is provide people an opportunity to get farm fresh produce and meats. <laughs> so that's where I'm starting. I think that's important. You know, I think there's different points of intersection for people who get consciousness in different ways. It's just how do we keep them liberatory um, so that they don't just become lifestyle, which like veganism became or paleo could is on its way to becoming. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, paleo is a problem right now. It's it's a bit of a brand. So But but I mean but it but it takes time. Like so like so when I talk about building, you know, I've talked about before like building infrastructure, like you know, we have to rebuild civil society from the ground up, right? We need health even if we have Obamacare, we need health clinics and childcare and stuff on every corner. But how do we keep them liberatory? This is the questions I'm asking myself now these days. How do we keep them liberatory and how do we keep them where they're conflictual with the state, where they're not just something wrapped up in the capitalist system. It's just an alternative within the system so that we can be happy that, or that, that other people with privilege can have access to it. How do we keep these, you know? And so I think that, I think that talking about these dietary choices or, or different points of intersection are the, are the first roads in. And then we have to ask these questions and begin to build institutions that are, are, that are challenging to the state in different ways. Yeah, you know, this is fin- that's it's, it's perfect this. because you know you you get healthy exactly. <laughs> and then make yep. some change. You know when you can move around and function. You know, so man, this has been fantastic and has opened up like ten thousand questions and avenues for me. I'm like my head's spinning. It's been fantastic. So let's uh, mention your site, scottcrow.org. Yep. Yes. And uh, anything else? Um, let's see. You can also um, you can find me on Facecrack if you use social media, mm-hmm. uh, or you can find me through Twitter. Um, and scottcrow.org is crow like the bird, not like the actor. There's no e in it. Scottcrow.org. O r g. I'll have uh, links in the show notes for people. And man. I can't wait to dive into your book. I've had it, and a, a couple people have been uh, stole it from me right away. So <laughs> I got to get it back and dive in and um, get some more of this, you know, the background and the story. It, like I said, um, meeting you was a, a real treasure. I'm, I'm so pleased to have met you. Very inspired. Same with you. you know, I'm and, inspired uh, too. I think what 
what you're doing is super important and what people like you are doing. And I hope that Cleveland in the general area that y'all be, are able to network and continue to, to continue to build liberation. It's really important. Thanks, Scott. That means a lot to me. Fantastic. I'm going to let you go for this okay. evening and we'll stay in okay. touch. Okay. That sounds fantastic. Thank Good you night. so much, Brad. Good night. Uh, it's good talking to you. Bye. Take care. Peace.